Chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you have need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is a guilt is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have, <clears throat> what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I told you this morning that we're going to spend a few minutes this evening talking about the subject of church discipline. And just on its face, it doesn't sound like a very pleasant topic, does it? It sounds like one of those things that, okay, let's just endure this and move on to more important things. But let me just frame the discussion this way. The church that Jesus built, that Jesus established is one of the greatest blessings that you can ever experience in this world to be a part of the body of Christ. It's God's will for you. He wants everybody to be a part of the body of Christ. And there are blessings that you can get in the body that you cannot find anywhere else. You can't find those blessings when you're all by yourself fishing or when you are off at your workplace. You can't find the blessings that only can be experienced as a part of the body of Christ. For example, as members of the body of Christ, we encourage one another. We stir each other up to love and good works. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. As members of the body of Christ, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Isn't it wonderful to know that as members of the body of Christ, that we can encourage each other, we can befriend one another, and that we can be family together. There is no Jew or Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. But also, one of the blessings of being a part of the body of Christ is that we are accountable to one another. Accountability. That's what church discipline is really all about. It's about realizing that I'm accountable to God, you're accountable to God, we're gonna give an answer for how we've lived our lives, but we also have a mutual accountability to one another. We are to be concerned about each other. And when a brother or sister is sinning, and especially when that sin is repeated and it is, it is unrepented, there are some things that we need to do to help one another in situations like that. And that's intended as a blessing from God as well. Confrontation has been called the gift that nobody wants. It is a gift, nobody wants it. And yet God says, if you're faithful to me, if you're loyal to me, 
part of a loving congregation, part of what a loving congregation ought to do is from time to time we need to exercise discipline in the ways God has prescribed in his word. So get your Bible out. This is one of those classy sermons or preachy classes tonight. Get your Bible out and I want you to do one thing real quick. I want you to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 5. And then maybe if you've got like me, if you've got a little, um, I don't know, a marker in your Bible, go ahead and mark 2 Thessalonians 3. So 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3. We're going to be back and forth. Those are the two primary New Testament passages that talk about this particular subject. And again, our religious neighbors practice various forms of discipline on their members, but they may not be doing what the Bible says to do. Let's open God's word and see what the Bible teaches. How does God tell us that he wants us to exercise discipline when a brother or sister is living in sin? So 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Those are the passages I want you to have kind of at the ready. Here we go. As we think about what church discipline is, let's start with the meaning of church discipline. What does it mean? If you're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's begin there. The Bible says, I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is, a, that there is sexual immorality among you. He's talking to a church, Paul is. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So in the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, here's a man and he is having relations with his father's wife. And the whole church knows about this. In fact, it's been reported to Paul. He's somewhere else and he's heard about this, this man that is living this way. And notice the church's reaction in verse two. It says, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So the church's response to this man's sin was for whatever reason, they were kind of, maybe they were just rejoicing in the fact that they were being loving and gracious and tolerant and kind, whatever it was, instead of mourning and dealing with this man and confronting him, they were allowing him to persist in this particular sinful behavior. Here is the inspired counsel for what this church was to do 2,000 years ago. Verse 3, for I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present, uh, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, Paul writes, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying church, he says in verse six, is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What does it mean to exercise, to practice church discipline? I just want to notice a few phrases in what we read just now. Paul says, you've got to deal with this man, church. You've got, to, you've got to come together and agree that he cannot continue in this behavior. He cannot keep living this way because to let him live this way is going to cost him his soul and it's going to have an influence on you, the church. Other people are going to be encouraged to think that they can live this way too and they can sin too and it's no big deal. There's something serious at stake here. Notice 
the phrases and expressions. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2, the meaning of church discipline, it has to do with a taking away. What is being counseled is that this individual should no longer be allowed to remain a part of the congregation while he persists in this sin, while he is unrepentant. In verse 5, it describes this as a delivering unto Satan. And that sounds really harsh unless you stop and think this man has already shown by his willful defiance of God's will that he is going to live for Satan anyway. And it's like the church is saying, if, you, if you've shown that you don't have any intention of changing this behavior, let Satan have you for a little while. See where that gets you is the kind of idea. Delivering him unto Satan. See what happens. It mentions the destruction of the flesh there in verse five. And the idea is that this will not end well. Sin never does. Let him deal with the fruit and the consequences of some of the things that he's, deal, he's doing with the hope that his soul may be saved. Continuing, verse seven, it has to do with purging of the old leaven. Don't allow this man's influence to persist any longer in the body of Christ because this is going to encourage the young people. They're gonna see this man living this way and they're gonna think that it's okay for them to do that when they grow up. Older people are gonna struggle with this particular sin or other kinds of sin because of his influence. In verse 11, the passage that Jeff read just a moment ago, the apostle says, don't even eat with this man. So if this man comes along and says, after the church has come together and said, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to put you away, we're going to have to deliver you to Satan because of the way that you're living your life, the Bible says that the church is to refuse even to eat. If he invites you for a meal, I'm sorry, we have to, we have to draw a boundary here because of what God has counseled us to do. In verse 12, it has to do with judgment. And it's interesting in verse 12 that the Bible says, this is not something that the church does to people who are outside. When you obey the gospel, when you are baptized for the remission of your sins, you become a part of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Acts 2 verse 47. And there is a responsibility and an obligation that is special upon you that you didn't have upon you before. That's not to say that you weren't supposed to live after God's will before, but now that we are a part of the body of Christ, we have a special obligation. This kind of judgment is for those who are part of the church. And then verse 13, it has to do with a putting away. You see that in the passage? What does it mean to discipline someone, to put them away, to deliver them to Satan, to take them away from the body, from the assembly, to refuse to eat with them, those kinds of things. Now turn in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians 3. And again, this is another major passage that deals with this same concept. I'm not going to read the entire passage for time's sake, but I want you to notice in verse 6, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. What is it when we withdraw from someone? What is it when we exercise church discipline? The Bible says it is a withdrawing. Is the church withdrawing its fellowship, withdrawing its participation, its communion, its fellowship with another individual? Again, this is not arbitrary. This is not something we do as a knee-jerk reaction because we're mad at somebody. This is deliberate. It is thoughtful. It is accompanied by tremendous amounts of prayer 
And it is something that God says may need to happen in people's lives so that they can be saved. It is counterintuitive, by the way. If you have a Christ-like heart, you're going to try to be a peacemaker. If you have a Christ-like heart, you're going to try to be at peace with everybody. Confrontation is not what you're all about. But this demands that we confront people where they are. It demands that we thoughtfully and prayerfully and kindly help people understand and open their eyes to what's going on in their lives so that their souls can be saved. Again, in this same passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, notice verse 14. If anyone does not obey our word, 2 Thessalonians 3.14 in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. The intention of this is to help wake somebody up. If you won't listen to repeated warnings from brethren, from elders, from concerned Christians, if you won't listen to the warnings of God's word, the church may act this way toward you. And the idea is so that you may be ashamed of the sin, the sinful behavior that you're continuing in your life. One more passage before we leave this point, the meaning of church discipline, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I've got Thessalonians on my mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And notice that Paul writes about, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes about what had happened based on what he wrote in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6, The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. It appears when you read 2 Corinthians 2, especially verses 6 and 7, it appears that this may be the same man that was withdrawn from in 1 Corinthians 5. The church did what Paul counseled them to do, commanded them to do. And by withdrawing from that man, the man was ashamed and he repented of his sin. And by the way, when someone is withdrawn from biblically, the way that they come back to fellowship with the church is by repentance and by asking forgiveness. That's the way it happens biblically. And this man had done that. And now Paul is telling the church, look, you did something that was very severe and I counseled you to do that. But now... This punishment which has been inflicted by many upon the one, don't don't make that a lingering thing. Things have been better in this man's life now. Forgive him, count him as a brother. That's the meaning of this. Secondly tonight, as we think about church discipline, the need for it, go back to 1 Corinthians 5. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5. I said we'd be flipping back and forth a little bit. Why should we even do this? Not many congregations do this, by the way. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, it is time consuming, and thankfully, in my observation over the years, thankfully, most brethren who are walking in a sinful lifestyle when they are confronted will repent before they get to this point. I believe that's by God's design. But why is it needed? God commands it, as we mentioned just a moment ago, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, withdraw from such a one. God says, do it. It's counterintuitive. It's not what you and I might decide, but this is God's command. This is God's will. But look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. The soul of the impenitent demands it. The purpose for doing this 
It's God's wisdom, not mine. God's wisdom, not yours. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. God says, when the whole church comes together, this is a last ditch effort. This is God's will. This is God's design to help somebody wake up and realize they need to return to him. They need to come home. His soul demands it. Do you care about souls? Do we realize that we're going to be somewhere forever? Do we realize that souls are more important even than life and death itself? That's the idea. It shows the value of the church. The first case of church discipline happened with Ananias and Sapphira, remember? Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Two people married that lied to the church. They acted like they were giving everything to the apostles, everything to the church. They pretended and they they were proud and puffed up and both of them were struck dead. And what's interesting about that passage in Acts 5 is it shows you don't mess around with the church of our Lord. You don't just casually flippantly treat the people that have been bought by the blood of Christ, Acts 20 verse 28, you just can't. Jesus died for the church You and I cannot treat it lightly. And then there's this. It causes self-examination for all. You might write that passage down. 1 Timothy 5 verse 20, you know what it says? Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that all may learn and fear. Timothy was commanded as a preacher of the gospel to confront people in the presence of others. If there is something that a person was doing and everybody knows they're doing this, everybody knows it's a problem in this person's life, Timothy, rebuke them in the presence of all that others may examine their own lives as well. There's something about effective, godly, biblical discipline that causes all of us to look at our hearts and ask, Master, is it I? Third tonight, as we think about this topic of church discipline, the procedure of it. Church discipline does not begin with 1 Corinthians 5 and it does not begin with 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It just doesn't. That is the end, the culmination. That is the last ditch effort that the church is supposed to use, hopefully in very limited cases. Church discipline ought to, all discipline ought to begin with self-discipline. As a parent, I hope that my kids will be self-disciplined. They're more self-disciplined now than they were when they were younger, but they don't have it all together. And to be honest, dad doesn't either. But in an ideal world, in a perfect world, we would all be self-disciplined because the fruit of the spirit is self-control, Galatians 5.23. We would all examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. In a perfect world, we would all be self-disciplined and we would walk in the light and we would never need anybody to come alongside us and say, hey, John, I noticed there's something going on in your life and I need to talk to you about this. This is not God's will for you. In a perfect world, we would all be self-disciplined. And as parents, that's what we hope our kids become as they get older, right? That's why we discipline them when they're young, so that when they're older, they have a foundation of self-discipline. They know what's right and what's wrong. That's the idea. And the same thing is true in the church, that there is discipline that, you know, we we hope that people will be self-disciplined, that they will turn to God and repent to his will on their own. But that doesn't always work. 
And so when it doesn't work, when people don't discipline themselves, there is a time and a place for those who are spiritual to be concerned about and even to warn those who are living or acting in sinful ways. Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2, if a brother is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, lest you be tempted, considering yourself. We are to express concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we ought to, in a godly way, in a kind way, warn them about the path they're on. It's a blessing, by the way. When somebody comes to you and says, listen, I need to talk to you. We've got to talk about this. When somebody comes to you and wants to have that conversation, don't ever, don't ever look at that conversation and say, well, I, I, I don't want this. Confrontation is a gift. It is the gift that nobody wants. Humble yourself and listen to what the other person has to say. And even if you walk away from that conversation and you say, I don't know that I agree with everything they said, listen for what's true in that conversation. God is trying to help you by bringing godly people alongside you who are concerned about your soul. Don't blow that off and act like it doesn't matter. Next, in Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17, there's your homework for tonight. You can read that passage. If somebody sins against you, go to your brother privately, Jesus says, and tell him his fault between the two of you. Don't don't put it on Facebook and don't tell all your friends and then go to your brother. Go to your brother, deal with the problem, and if he hears you, great. If not, take two or three witnesses so that every word may be established, and you and your brother and these two or three witnesses deal with this. And if he still won't hear you, then, Matthew 18, 17, Jesus says, tell it to the church. There is a time when people have been guilty of sin and they are impenitent. They're saying by their lives and by their words, I have no intention of changing. I have no intention of repenting. If that's what somebody's going to say, there's a time when we need to tell this to the church and say, listen, we need everybody to encourage this person, to pray for this person because of the way that they're living. Next. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, there may come a time when the church collectively decides we need to do what 2 Thessalonians 3 says, we need to do what 1 Corinthians 5 says. This person has shown no inclination to repent. We need to withdraw from this person. And again, painful, difficult, emotionally gut-wrenching, full of all kinds of practical questions like, You know, if I'm in a business relationship with this person, how do I treat them and how do I deal with them? The Bible says don't even eat with them. What am I supposed to do about that? You know, what if I'm married to somebody that's withdrawn from? How do you, you know, how do you do that? A lot of practical questions that have to be worked through in godly, wise ways. But this is God's counsel. This is God's will. Withdraw fellowship. Don't count that person, though, as an enemy. I love 2 Thessalonians 3.15. That person who's been withdrawn from is not your enemy. He is your brother. And when you see him at the grocery store, when you see her at the mall, or you run into her in the hallway at school, whatever it is, you say, we miss you. We're praying for you. And we're hoping that things are better in your life. We're hoping that you'll repent and you'll come home to God and come home to us. Don't count them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother. That's the procedure. 
And then finally, oh, excuse me, two more, two more. Candidates for church discipline. Who is a candidate? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let me just list these fairly quickly because you can find these in your own Bible. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, everyone, everyone is a candidate potentially for church discipline. Everyone who walks disorderly. Not only that, but those who are false teachers. 2 John verses 9 through 11. When somebody says something and has an agenda, they're trying to push that is false, that is untrue, that is contrary to the gospel, that person needs to be disciplined. By the way, elders are commanded to stop the mouths of false teachers. You don't let them in the pulpit. You don't let them stand behind a lectern in a classroom. And you don't let them have home Bible studies where they're trying to influence people if you know for a fact that they're trying to push a false agenda, that they're trying to say something to people that is untrue. But it may be that the church needs to withdraw fellowship from people like that as well in certain cases. Divisive people. There are some people who, they're just divisive. Maybe what they're saying is not untrue, but by their spirit, by their attitude, they are just caustic. And they are constantly trying to sow the seeds of discord. A divisive man reject after the first and second admonition, Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 5.11, those who are sexually immoral, like the man who had his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5.1 and 2, candidate for church discipline. Those who are greedy. I wonder how many times in the last 2,000 years a congregation has ever withdrawn from someone who was greedy. Interesting, but it's there in the Bible, isn't it? How about idolaters, people who worship idols, revilers, those who are constantly casting aspersion on others' character, who are constantly tearing down by their words, reviling, mocking people, things like that. Drunkards, those who are so given over to alcoholic beverages or to, or to uh, uh, drugs and things like that, that, that they are constantly, constantly out of control. And the fruit of the Spirit, again, is self-control. Drunkards. Swindlers and cheaters, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Again, I don't know that I've ever heard of a congregation that withdrew from someone because this person was a chronic swindler, but it's there in the Bible. A cheater, candidates for church discipline. Any sin that we are unwilling to repent of is conceivably a sin that might cause the church to need for our soul's sake and for the church's purity's sake the church to withdraw from us. Now, finally, objections, because there always are, you know, the, it just, this is a tough thing to do. This is a difficult, gut-wrenching, emotionally fraught kind of thing. And yet God says, do it. And he says it very clearly. And he says it more than one place in his word. This is not something that is just kind of an obscure, you know, idea somewhere in the lost parts of the Bible, as if there were any of those. What are the objections people might make? Well, it'll just make them angry. If we do this, it'll just make them mad. Maybe so. Confrontation frequently does. But is the fact that somebody might become angry a reason for us to fail to do what God commands us to do? Certainly not the case with evangelism, is it? Tell somebody the truth about Jesus and the gospel and they may become angry. That's what happened to the hearers of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. 
Doesn't mean Stephen did the wrong thing. Secondly, who are we to judge? After all, Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. Get the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out of your brother's eye. Things like that. Yes, that's true as well. And what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 is having a critical and a fault-finding spirit. Churches and elderships are not to have an attitude like a watchdog that is constantly just perched over people ready to pounce. That's not a healthy thing. For us to go looking in people's lives for things that are wrong and searching for reasons why we want to withdraw from this person or that person, that is not the right spirit. But in God's time and in the way that the church works, frequently there are very egregious, very obvious cases where people are living in sin and they must be confronted if we love them. Well, they've already withdrawn themselves. Hebrews 10 verse 25 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And a lot of times elderships and congregations will say, well, that person's already withdrawn themselves. You know, they're really not part of the church anyway. They're not functioning with us. They're not meeting with us. And therefore nothing needs to be done. Are they not walking disorderly? If a person is living outside of the will of God and they're doing so chronically and they show no evidence that they intend to repent, is that not walking outside of God's light? And do we not have an obligation because we love people to go after the one sheep, you know, leave the 99? God desires for us to care about people enough to confront them. Well, our numbers will decrease. The goal of the New Testament church is not to, on its face, just increase in size. It's wonderful when many souls turn to the Lord. It's wonderful when you see those reports in the book of Acts about 3,000 obeyed the gospel on the day of Pentecost and the number grew to over 5,000 when you get over to Acts chapters four and five. It's wonderful to see those progress reports. It's wonderful to see a spreadsheet and a flow chart and all the different things that go on in, in attendance in a local congregation. But the church is not just about numbers. The church is about being faithful to the Lord. It's about purity. It's about service to God, and it's about making sure that the leaven of evil does not influence the whole lump. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 says. Even Jesus in his preaching preached a sermon in John chapter 6 where all of his disciples walked away. Lord, this is a hard saying. We're not going to follow you anymore. And Jesus didn't go chasing after them and beg them, wait, 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 come back, come back. You misunderstood me. He didn't do that. He just turned to his 12 and he said, do you also want to go away? The Lord wants people who want to follow him with their whole heart. That's what we want for people as well. Follow Jesus with your whole heart. And if that happens, there will never be a need for anyone to be disciplined by the church. One of the greatest blessings in your life is the presence of loving brothers and sisters who care about you, who care about your soul. Thank God sometime this week for an eldership and a congregation that loves you and that cares about you, that you can be accountable to and that also can be accountable to you. Thank God for that. It's a blessing from God in your life. When church discipline must take place, may we do it in a way that pleases God, 
May we do it in a way that honors and lifts up Jesus Christ and shows the purity and the blessedness of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you're not a New Testament Christian, we're going to offer heaven's invitation at this time. The way that you become a Christian is by faith in Christ, repentance of your sin, and baptism in water for remission of sins. If you're ready to make that commitment to become just a Christian, to obey the gospel and become part of the body of Christ that we've been talking about this evening, there's no better time than right now. There's no better place than here. If you're ready to make that decision or if you'd like to ask for prayers, won't you make your need known while together we stand and while we sing. For the gentle voice of Jesus, Lord.